For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Before moving to Minnesota, Alex and I lived in Colorado. And I don't know if you know this, but Colorado actually has some desert. And what I find funny about the desert, if you're driving in the desert, they still have like... um, scenic or they have rest stops but they actually call them scenic overpasses or scenic rest stops and so you pull over and you look out and it's it's dirt right there's a tumbleweed uh, there's a cactus um, vultures eating something dead and the people who live in the desert think that's beautiful they'll be like isn't it beautiful and you're like my adjective was god forsaken maybe, uh, hell on earth, desolate. And they're like, no, 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 don't you see how dry it is? It's like, yeah, I see that. It's a real Sodom and Gomorrah vibe, right? People who live in the desert see a beauty that I just can't see. Likewise, people who live in Minnesota, it'll be negative 30 degrees wind chill. Your car won't start, but the sun is out. And so we're like, it's a beautiful day, Right? No doubt. We have to get outside today. It's a nice day. And people in the rest of the country are like, just who are you guys? My point is that some people can look at something and see glory and grandeur and grace. And other people can look at the exact same thing and just not see it. The same is true with the cross. Some people can look at the the life of Jesus, Jesus' teachings, Jesus' death, and see glory and grandeur and grace, while other people can look at the exact same things and just not see it. And in this morning's passage, we're going to see Jesus' final moments before the cross, and I've been praying all week that the Holy Spirit would help us see glory and grandeur and grace. Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15 at Vertical Church. I don't think any of you guys care what I think. You want to know what God thinks. That's why we drove over to church today. And so we go verse by verse through the Bible every week. This morning we are in Mark 15, but it's been about a a month since we've been in Mark. So let's remember the setting. Mark 14 was all about Jesus being abandoned. Jesus, the Son of God, abandoned by Judas, by Peter, by the disciples, they all left him and fled. And then we saw Jesus on trial. And what God, through the author of Mark, wants us to see is the irony of it all. We saw just layers of irony in chapter 14. The fact that they came to capture Jesus with swords and clubs. And it's ironic because While on the surface, it looks like it's Roman hands that are seizing Jesus, Jesus points us to a deeper hand, the Father's hand, let the scriptures be fulfilled. It looks like they're capturing Jesus, but in reality, Jesus is rescuing them. Then they put Jesus, who is Yahweh with skin. Never forget that. We know his his humanity. Never forget his deity. They put him on trial, and it's ironic because on the surface, it looks like it's Jesus on trial, but if you look deeper, 
We see, no, they're the ones on trial. They're not judging Jesus. Jesus is judging them. And then Jesus is condemned to die for the charge of, do you remember? Blasphemy. The the charge of disrespecting God. It's ironic because they charge God with blasphemy while they have God tied up in their living room. And then they put a hood over Jesus' head and they just start punching him and telling telling him, prophesy, (laughs) prophesy. And it's ironic because at that very moment, Jesus' prophecy about Peter denying him three times is being fulfilled just outside the house. So why does Mark keep using irony? Because Mark is dividing people into two groups, people who can see what's happening on the surface and people who can see and feel the power of what's happening underneath the surface. Mark continually uses irony as a way of asking, okay, can you see? I know you can see that, but can you really see? And so let's look now to verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 1, and Holy Spirit, help us really see. Mark 15, verse 1, if you're there, say nice and loud there. All right, let's lean in. And as soon as it was morning, it's about 5 a.m., the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. So the Sanhedrin, 71 people, we're probably talking about 100 people here. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. So the Jewish leaders take Jesus to Pilate because the Jews at this time didn't have legal right to execute people. That had to be done by Rome. Now, sometimes they took that matter into their own hands, like the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7, but they didn't dare do that with Jesus because Jesus was so high profile. For three years, Jesus, everyone in Israel had been talking about Jesus, so the Jewish leaders thought, okay, if we can get Pontius Pilate to kill him, then we can distance ourselves from any possible political fallout. So they tie Jesus up, they bring him to Pilate, verse 2, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? So apparently the charge that they brought to Pilate was not the one they decided on back in Caiaphas' house. Blasphemy. Well, why? Because Pilate's a pagan. He doesn't care about blasphemy. So they said, hey, Pilate, this man, Jesus, he's guilty of high treason. He claims to be the king of the Jews, and we all know that the real king of the Jews is Caesar. Because the chief priests hate Caesar. The religious right, they didn't even acknowledge Caesar as king, and so I'm sure they threw up in their mouth a little bit. But listen, when people want to extinguish the reality of Jesus, they say things even they don't believe. Verse 2, and Pilate asked him, Are you? the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Now, to be honest, I've always been a little bit annoyed by this answer (laughs) because it seems just needlessly evasive. Uh, Are you this? I don't know. Am I? That's actually not what's happening here. Jesus isn't playing coy. He's not being difficult. He's tipping his hat to see if Pilate can see. He's provoking 
Pilate. A modern translation would be, are you the king of the Jews? Well, you just said king. Say that again. See, when Pilate uses the word king, he's thinking in the merely political, earthly category, and Jesus is drawing him in. You said the word king. Yeah, I am the king of the Jews. And the chief priests see this. They see that, okay, something weird is happening with this king of the Jews thing. And so they chime in with different charges. Verse 3, and the chief priests accused him of many things. So they just started piling it on. Um, yeah, he said he's going to destroy the temple. We heard that, right, guys? Yeah, yeah, I heard that. And um, he said he's going to be starting an insurrection. And, you know, the, the last thing Caesar wants to hear is that there's an insurrection starting in your region, right, Pilate? So, uh, oh, and, and when you guys came to arrest him, one of his punk friends cut off one of your soldiers' ears. They just start piling on all of the charges they can think of. Verse 4, and Pilate asked him again, have you no answer to make? Do you see how many charges they bring against you? Verse 5, now see it. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Can Pilate see it? Pilate would have sat over hundreds, if not thousands, of death sentences and executions. And undoubtedly, what he was used to was men and women vehemently defending themselves and pathetically groveling for their lives. Jesus, with calm dignity, sits silent. Can he see it? See what? That Jesus is the silent, suffering servant of Isaiah 53. You see, Jesus is silent, but that doesn't mean he's not communicating something. His silence is screaming. His silence is shouting, Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led, led to the slaughter and like a sheep that's before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In C.S. Lewis's book, A Grief Observed, he reflects back on the profound grief he felt after his wife Joy died of cancer only after four short years of marriage. And Lewis writes, Meanwhile, where is God? But go to him when your need is desperate, when all the other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After all that, just silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will come. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhibited? It seemed so once, and that seeming was as strong as this one. So what can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in our time of trouble? Lewis writes, I tried to put some of these thoughts to a friend this afternoon. He reminded me the same thing seems to have happened to Christ. Why hast thou forsaken me? I know that. Does it make it any easier? It's not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God, the real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but so this 
is what God's really like? Have you ever encountered the agonizing silence of God? It's the worst throbbing ache a Christian can experience. I'd rather have everyone in my life shouting scorn than God sitting silent. And God's silence is far too complex and painful for me to offer any trite tips this morning. But as a preacher, I'm just going to say what's immediately evident in our passage, and that's this. Jesus' silence says something. In Mark 15, his silence is shouting, I am the suffering servant, the one who Isaiah 700 years ago promised you. I am the one who's going to sit before his accusers silent. You know, it's not his speaking, but his silence that says, I'm here to bear your griefs and carry your sorrows. I'm here to be pierced for your transgressions and crushed for your iniquities. I'm here to bring you peace, and by my wounds you are healed. Can Pilate see it? No. But can you? Church family, see Jesus in the silence. His words whisper, but listen, his, his silence shouts. And this isn't a totally foreign concept to us. We all communicate things through silence. If you're really angry with someone, we call it what? The silent treatment. You say something by not saying something. Or maybe you've experienced the silence of indifference. Maybe your dad never said much to you because, frankly, he didn't have much to say. But there's also positive silences. Maybe you've experienced consoling silence. When my mom passed away, an elderly woman who I suspect was well acquainted with loss came up to me, gave me the longest hug, looked me in my eyes with tears in her eyes, and she just nodded in a way to communicate, I know, honey, I know. And know this, if you want to know what the demons are doing in your life, they're trying to convince you that God's silence is either the silent treatment or the silence of indifference. And my question to you today is, when you look at Mark 15, can you see that when God sits silent, it's not because he's angry or apathetic. It's just the opposite. His silence, uh, he's silent because he's not angry. He even said it. If, I'm a- if I was angry, I'd call down a legion of angels right now. He's silent because he's not angry. He's silent because he does care so much to carry all of our sins. Many of us, myself included, listen, need to stop hating the God who sometimes sits silent. We need to let God's word speak louder than our fears and believe that his silence is never the silent treatment. There is therefore now no condemnation. You are not destined to wrath. It's never the silent treatment. It can't be. 
And it's certainly never the silence of indifference. His silence may be to console. It may be to convict. It may be to communicate, but it's never to condemn. When I was in a season where God seemed so agonizingly silent, I wrote this little poem. What if the aching is the answer? What if the yearning is the yes? What if the groaning is the grandeur, the knock, the door, the rest? What if your silence is your singing, and what if your stillness is your breath? What if my fighting is the feasting, the eating, the drinking, the blessed? What if my praying is your presence, and what if your presence is my prayers? And what if I could have all I ever wanted by sitting in silence with you right here? Spurgeon said, speech is silver, but silence is gold. Guys, let's learn to mine the gold buried deep in the silence of God. In Mark 15, no one had learned to mine gold from God's silence, and so Pilate can't see it. None of the religious leaders can't see it. At least they can't see his divinity. Pilate can see his innocence. He knows this isn't legit, and so he tries to come up with a clever plan to exonerate Jesus. Apparently, he had a tradition of releasing one prisoner during Passover. And, and what day is it again today? Passover. Verse 6, see it. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner from whom they asked, and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Matthew says Barabbas was a notorious prisoner. Uh, he started an insurrection, murdered at least one person, probably many in the ensuing riot. You guys, in today's terms, we call him a terrorist. Barabbas was a terrorist. He hated the government. He planned and executed an, a plot to overthrow the government, and he killed people in doing so. Barabbas is a terrorist. Verse 8, and the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was, what does that say? Out of what? Envy that the chief priests had delivered him. The religious leaders delivered Jesus out of envy. Just note that. Verse 11. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what should I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! Yeah, yeah, cr crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What, what evil has he done? And they shouted out all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, what's his motive? What does that say? Wishing to satisfy the crowd. God wants us to see <laughs> when envy and people-pleasing mix, it leads to death. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, 
he delivered him to be crucified. To be scourged was to be whipped uh, with a device known as a flagellum, a flagellum, which is a, apparently, this is news to me, um, it's a, it was a wooden handle with long leather strips, and the leather was embedded with sharp pieces of bone and metal balls at the very end designed to penetrate the flesh, and then when they ripped it back, it would actually essentially skin the person alive. So the victim would be tied to a post, his hands extended high over his head, his feet were tied and then suspended about a foot off the ground so that the body was perfectly stretched. And the Romans didn't stop at 39 lashes like the, like the Jews did. They would keep going until the victim was basically skinned alive. We have one written account, historic account, of a backbone being flung and a dog picking it up and running away. Oftentimes, those who were being executed wouldn't even survive the scourging. There was such a, a loss of blood. And so here's the question. Can Barabbas see it? I mean, guys, just put yourself in the place of Barabbas. You're in a dark, wet, cold dungeon, and you're there because you led a riot. You led an insurrection, and you know what happens in Rome to insurrectionists. Crucifixion, the worst way to go. And so 6 a.m., jailer comes down, kicks you. Get up, let's go. And you get led through this dark passage, and all of a sudden, you're out in front of this huge crowd. And they stand you right next to Jesus. And you know about Jesus. Everyone knows about Jesus. Now, you've never taken him seriously, but you've heard about him for years. And Pilate says, okay, it's Passover. I'm going to set one of these two free. The other one will be crucified. Which one do you want? And you're just ready for them. Of course they're going to pick Jesus. And all of a sudden they say, Barabbas. Yes, Barabbas. And you look up and you look at Pilate and his face just drops. What do you mean, Barabbas? Jesus hasn't done anything. I've tried him. I've found him to be innocent. What should I do with Jesus? Crucify him. Crucify him. And you look over at Jesus, and he's not fighting it. In fact, he's nodding. Yeah, crucify me. Let Barabbas go. Seeing this, Pilate reluctantly nods. A guard comes over you. Your chains drop, and you're free. And then in a matter of mere minutes, you're watching this Jesus get scorched. There's blood everywhere. There's guts. He's writhing in pain. And the question is, can he see it? Can he say, that should be me. Like, I don't want to die, but, but he hasn't done anything. I'm the one who's killed people. I'm the terrorist. That should be me. You guys, in all four Gospels, the story right before the crucifixion is the story of Barabbas. Why? Because God wants us to see. You can't see the glory and the grandeur and the grace of the cross until you see substitution. Did Barabbas see it? 
I don't know, but church family, can you see it? To be moved by the cross, you must see Jesus as your substitute. Jesus wasn't just taking the place of Barabbas. Do you know this? He was taking the place for all of us. Romans 5.8, for while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you feel the, the weight of for, on behalf of, in the place of? The power of the cross is that Jesus, the innocent one, gets punished so that you and me, the guilty ones, could feel the chains drop. And could hear John 8, 36, the one whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So here's my question. What did Jesus want Barabbas to do? What did he want him to do? Did he want him to argue with the crowd? No, I, I won't let this happen. I refuse to let an innocent man die in my place. I think Jesus would have looked at Barabbas and said, Barabbas, it's okay. This is the plan. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. Did Jesus want him to say, okay, well, okay, if you're going to cruise him, then at least you're going to crucify me. Put up another cross. I'm going too. Jesus would have said, Barabbas, don't you see? The crowd isn't freeing you. I am. I've always known you, Barabbas. I've always been with you before the foundations of the world. I chose you, Barabbas, to be the first person to feel the freedom of the cross. You get a second life, son. Go live And never forget who set you free. Many of us here today believe conceptually that Jesus took our place and freed us from the penalty of our sins, past, present, and future. But we don't feel forgiven. We think, maybe God wants me to go pick up the phlegium and just start scorning myself. Just a little bit. Just to prove to him that I know that I'm a sinner. Maybe we feel like, you know, I know these chains are unlocked, but maybe I should just put them back on my hands just so I don't go crazy. Or maybe we feel like I should, maybe I'll just go sleep in the dungeon. You know, I don't want to minimize what I did. To which God would say, yeah, but then you're minimizing the cross. Then you're minimizing my grace. I'm not doing this for conceptual forgiveness. I'm doing this for felt forgiveness. Barabbas, I want you to feel free. Christian, I want you to feel free. I want you to see my love and my mercy and my glory and my grandeur and my grace. And don't fight it. Just let me take your place. God's words to you and me would be the same words if Barabbas had protested. No, 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 I've always known you. I've always been with you. And before the foundation of the world, I chose you to be set free by my death. You get a second chance. Go live your life and never forget who set you free. 
Can Pilate see God in the silence? No. But can you? Can Barabbas see God as his personal substitute? I don't know, but can you? And now there's one more account of of blindness, verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. A Roman battalion is 600 soldiers, so feel the scene. Hey, everyone, come on, come on, come on in here. Today we get to crucify Jesus, the king of the Jews. Everyone's like, oh, okay, let's go. 600 people move in. Verse 17, and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed. And spitting on him. Remember, don't forget the face they're spitting on. This is the face that God the Father has eternally delighted in and just spoken. You are my beloved son. With you I am so well pleased forever. This is the face that spoke everything that exists into existence. And is holding it there. This is the face that had to be hidden from Moses, lest Moses look at it in its non-condescended state and die immediately. This is the face that seraphim, which are angels that are on eternal fire due to their proximity to the face, who are forever shouting, holy, 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 who have never sinned and yet still have to cover their face because they can't dare look at his face. Just read it again. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him. And kneeling down in homage to him. Notice, these guys aren't just clocking in and doing their job. They're having fun. They're enthusiastically engaged. They're punching him and they're spitting on them. And then they're even getting down on their knees and they're shouting, Hail Jesus! All hail King Jesus! Can they see it? Can they see what's happening right in front of their face? What's happening? Well, he's wearing a purple robe. Purple is the royal color of a king. He's wearing a crown, though it's made of thorns. He's being rightly acclaimed, though it's said mockingly. He has a reed, though it's being used to bludgeon him to death. He's being anointed, though it's not with oil, it's with spit. And those whom he is king of are bowing. Right before him, every knee will bow. Can you see it? Jesus is the Savior King. You see, the soldiers think they are mocking his glory. They don't know that God is using them to showcase his glory. 
They think they're pulling him down, but in reality, they are lifting him up so that he can draw all people to himself. And yet, don't miss this, guys. Don't miss Jesus' heart, even for these soldiers. Luke records that while the soldiers are doing all of this, Jesus prays for all 600 of them, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Not only does Jesus want felt forgiveness for Barabbas, he wants it for the soldiers too. This is glory and grandeur and grace. Verse 20, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. Why does Mark make sure once again that we know the cloak is purple. He already told us that up in verse 17. So why does he tell us again in verse 20? They stripped him of the purple cloak. Well, as I said, in the New Testament times, kings dressed in purple, Mark wants us to see Jesus as a savior king. But more significantly, in the Old Testament, there was the tabernacle. And within the tabernacle, there was a room called the Holy of holies. That was the only room in the world in which the manifest presence of God dwelt. And what separated the holy of holies from the rest of the tabernacle, from the rest of the world, was a temple veil. And the veil was colored blue on one end, if you know your Old Testament well. Blue on one end, red on the other. And as the colors blended together in the middle, the temple veil was purple. Mark is setting up the scene for next week when we'll see that at the minute Jesus dies, look at Mark 15, verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus is dressed in purple because he's the temple veil. He's the door the thing that's separating God from the rest of the world. And in a matter of minutes, he will be torn in two so that you and I can have access to God. A couple years ago, our friends invited us to a Timberwolves game, and nine out of ten times, if I'm invited to a Timberwolves game, heck no. Like, who wants to watch that? Um, but these weren't just tickets. These were VIP tickets. Like, and I've never had VIP tickets. So we roll into the valet with my 04 Chrysler Pacifica, and I toss them the keys, and I'm like, sorry, man, I don't carry cash. And he's like, clearly. And so he, he parks the car. And so they take us underneath the stadium where there's this five-star, all-you-can-eat buffet, like filet and lobster and all the fancy food you can eat. And so we eat that, and then they take us courtside, and... Um, my favorite part is you, can, you get all night, all you can eat, free concessions. So one of the guys comes over and he's like, what would you like, sir? And I'm like, do you have gummy bears? And he's like, we got gummy bears. I'm like, we're going to need those all night. So they just are bringing me gummy bears. I don't know if you've ever had VIP tickets, but the whole point is that there are thousands of people there, and you don't only get to go to the middle, you don't only get to go to the front, Man, you get to go backstage. 
where everyone's there to see somebody from a distance, the whole point of being VIP is you get to go backstage, meet them, take a picture with them, maybe even hug them. Guys, the, what Mark is making and setting up for next week is that if Jesus is the curtain and if the curtain is torn in two, then you and I have been given VIP passes, not to the Timberwolves, to the God of the universe. Jesus, right here, is giving every Christian all access, all inclusive, VIP passes backstage to meet with God anytime we want. Just listen to Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most high place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. That's it, church family. This morning, the word, the spirit through the word is calling us to see his silence, see his substitution, see his saving kingship, and then through his torn body, draw near into glory and grandeur and grace. Amen? Let's pray.